welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do list one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me are my co-hosts, Andy. Hello. And Tessa. Hello. It is the truth universally acknowledged that the 90s had the best film soundtracks. Today, we're talking about three 90s films known for their soundtracks. First, Tessa protects the Queen of the Night by watching The Bodyguard. Then, it's an Alan Moyle double feature, completely unintentionally. Andy records naked, wearing only a... not saying that. And I watched Empire Records. And you know what that means. It's Rex Manning Day. But before we get to that, Tessa, after what feels like years of badgering you, I got you to watch The Bodyguard. And by years of badgering me, don't you mean like six months? I feel like I've been telling you no. it's, it's a surprisingly good movie for quite a long time. No. Okay. I don't think so. I don't think that's I don't think that's real. I'm pretty sure you only brought up this movie like six months ago when okay. you started planning our 90s marathon, which I should point out that I watched this during a 90s marathon. We did like okay. 90s dramas with one romantic comedy. Right. So how did I finally succeed in getting you to watch this movie? I think, so you pitched it to me as a romance because we were talking about what we wanted to do for our marathon and the idea of 90s romances came up. No, I actually remember what happened. So it was a dark day on Twitter. And <laughs> what day is it dark how... on Twitter? Every day is a dark day on Twitter. No, no, no. You remember that day when the clip of Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac at, on the red carpet promoting their new project. I don't even remember what the project's called, but it was a clip of them on the red carpet and he like turns and kisses her arm and people were like oh, freaking yeah. out about it. Does anyone remember this? Yeah. No. This was on Twitter. So somebody like, like Adam's family style. Yeah, somebody yeah. and I don't I'm so sorry I would give you credit for this if I remembered who this was, but somebody tweeted the only reason people are freaking out about this is because we haven't had any good romantic thrillers for a long time. Like there's no like we just don't make the same kind of like romantic tension films right. as we used to do in the 90s. And really in the 80s as well. And so that got me talking with you about how I hadn't seen a lot of classic 90s films that were based around romances or romantic thrillers, right. etc. Romantic dramas. I think the last one was Night and Day with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. Yeah, mm. that's... That's, Too light, doesn't count. I feel like that's that leans a little bit further into comedy, but yeah, like something like that. We don't really get a lot of those anymore, and that's partially because the industry has become so sexless in a lot of ways. We, with the takeover of especially Disney, taking a lot of sex out of films has sort of happened. And so people are actually really starved for this content. I have a whole argument about why that's what, why we're so into psychosexual relationships between male leads now in a lot of television shows, but that's a whole different conversation. But the point is, is that this got us to the place where I asked Sam to make a list of 90s romantic movies that I hadn't seen yet. And so we watched a bunch of them about a month or so ago. And one of them was Bodyguard. So that that's how this whole thing came up. I hadn't seen it. I knew about it for a long time. It was on my list. I had just never really had it pitched to me 
in this context before, or I probably would have watched it a lot sooner. Okay, so before talk about the claim regarding if this movie is a romance or not, or if it is what kind of romance it is, what is the movie about? So this movie, which came out in 1992, it was directed by Mick Jackson, is about Kevin Costner playing a former U.S. Secret Service agent turned bodyguard. His name is Frank. He's hired to protect a very famous actress and pop star played by Whitney Houston. They think maybe there's an unknown stalker. Something blows up at some point. There's a lot of really threatening and creepy notes being sent to her. So he gets hired to keep an eye on things. She's initially very resistant to this idea. She doesn't think she needs a bodyguard. But of course, she is actually in danger. And there's some twists and turns that are really, really obvious. This movie is not known for its subtlety. Kevin Costner is not known for at all. But that, that's kind of the, the premise of this film. I do want to mention, though, because I thought this was really interesting. This movie was written by Lawrence Castan, and he actually originally wrote this script in the 70s and had been trying to get it produced since the 70s until they finally cast Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston in these roles. He wanted Steve McQueen and Diana Ross in these roles. And can you imagine what a different movie that would have been? in the 70s with those two playing these roles. I think about that a lot, actually. I I can't uh, imagine that because I haven't seen this movie. So really, I'm just imagining a, a movie with Steve McQueen and Diana Ross, was it? Lady Sings the Bullet. She was going to do it, too. She, no. like, dropped out, basically. And so that, that put it in development hell until Whitney Houston got involved. He also said it was inspired by Yojimbo. So this is a a, uh, a man with no name. Yeah, this Kevin is a Gossner. this is a another example of a Hollywood writer taking inspiration from Japanese samurai flicks. He was inspired by the idea. He wanted to write a story about someone who did this kind of thing for money. He was really interested in the idea of who a bodyguard is, how that would affect someone emotionally to basically put themselves in danger for someone else and to do that for money, not for any kind of like emotional attachment. So that's kind of what the basis of this film is. Yeah, and Kevin Costner's character makes a really big deal throughout the movie about not putting down roots, not having attachments, that kind of thing, very much Ronin territory. He also owns swords. Yeah, and there's that scene where she has the sword, and it is very sexy, where she has the sword. Okay, it sounds like you're talking about that Denzel Washington movie, Man on Fire, now. I haven't seen that. But it is very sexy, the scene where she has the sword, and she holds it out, and he takes her scarf and, like, drops it over the sword, and it just, like, immediately divides in half. Like, there is a lot of, like, Japanese sort of references here, but it's not to the point of, like, a fetishization of Japan. It's just like referen- referential more than it is like culturally appropriative. Hmm. Everyone is obsessed with this idea that he's the best. Uh, her her manager, I want to say it is, is like trying to get him to like, like he's trying to get them to work together because they have like all of this tension immediately. There's also a lot of like cultural differences between the two of them. Castan is not black and he's not necessarily wanting to write about blackness, but Whitney Houston brings this into her performance where everyone around her is black. She has a lot of like black 
culture going into her pop music, into the way that she performs, into the way that she does business. And Kevin Costner's character is very antithetical to that, not in like a racist way, but just in a like, he does not understand the culture that she's built in her house. And she feels very threatened by his not understanding that. And so there's a lot of like that kind of tension as well, which I thought was very interesting. Overall, it's a pretty good thriller. It it does borrow a lot of tropes from romance. You get, you know, the tension between the two of them. It's a slow burn. They're kind of enemies to lovers or at least conflict to lovers. There's the, the whole thing where it becomes so dangerous at some point that he has to take her and her son, who she's really worried about, to a secluded place in the middle of the woods to, like, protect them, which is very forced proximity romance. There's a lot of, like fighting because she, you know, wants him to be more vulnerable with her and he can't be vulnerable because he has to pull up roots as soon as the job is over. So there's a lot of like that kind of thing in here. Their their chemistry is really good. And I really appreciated the fact that he like kind of falls in love with her through watching her music videos, which I think is really funny. Like he's trying to understand more about her. Only in the 90s. He's trying to understand more about her. So she watches her music videos and like you could just see him like falling in love with her because she's Whitney Houston and she's fabulous. It, It never ceases to amaze me how much chemistry Kevin Costner has with literally anybody. I don't understand it. Anything and anybody. I don't understand it. Okay, now this is sounding more like the Warren Beatty, uh, Halle Berry classic, Bullworth. I've never seen it. I have no idea. Oh what the man! Comparison is. Oh, oh. So Warren Beatty plays a politician. The uh, he's a Democratic senator from California who basically plans to kill himself by hiring an assassin. And because he knows he's going to die, he like stops being a politician, and and like just just like yeah, doesn't care about it. And he meets. Halle Berry, who's a, you, you know, the typical, like, 90s white view of, of of a black person in poverty. And he just starts hanging out with her and, like, learning the, the real struggles. It is it is a very funny black comedy. Okay. I, I'll put it on the list. I had no idea this oh, movie existed. Oh, yeah. Warren Beatty directed it. It is it is fantastic. Uh, Don Cheadle's also in it. Like, oh, man. You can't, you can't sell me more on this movie. Uh, like well, this. <laughs> As we'll talk about in the next segment, this movie is actually most well-known for the hit single Ghetto Superstar that it brought onto the planet. Right. Which is which is a, a, a big trope of movies made in the 90s into the early 2000s. The, the soundtrack song lives forever, even if the movie doesn't. Right. Or, yes, or in- I'm going to bring back to Batman later. Or in the case of uh, Venom, you have Eminem rapping the theme song over the credits. That's basically just a summary of the plot of the movie. I will say that this movie has very mixed reviews. People think it's very cheesy. Oh, it's not good. It is not a great film. I'm just going to throw that out there. It is a very enjoyable film, but it is not what I would call well-constructed in terms of its emotional center or in terms of why some of these characters make some of the choices that they make. Like there's a specific choice that Kevin Costner's character makes about halfway through the film that I'm like, why? What? Why? I don't understand. Although I do enjoy the other scene because she has this, the one white person in her entourage is this like Sicilian, like very stereotypical. It's her original bodyguard. Like the person who like... It like takes care of her and, and they've been friends forever. And he's not, he's not and he's, handling his demotion very well. He's at all. not handling his demotion very well. And at one point, 
Frank doesn't communicate with him about something. And so he like goes after Frank in the kitchen. And like, it's a really fun action sequence with Kevin Costner. It's very funny. It's low stakes. Nobody's really going to get hurt. But it's like, it it's good. It Like, there are a lot of parts of this that are good. I'm not sure it adds up to a great whole. But uh-huh. I definitely met, recommend watching it, especially for Whitney Houston's performance, which is electric. It's so good. And she does such a good job of playing a pop star who has made it, who came from poor back, a poor background, who made it and is now struggling with who she is and, like, does she even want to be here? And she has a kid and yeah. she's trying to protect him. And, like, her fans are rabid to the point where, like, some of them are actually really harmful to her and so she has to like figure out how to negotiate that so her performance is also a plus and so this is a question you know we talk about what's good about this movie this is a question that you cannot ask anybody born before 1980 because the there's this not a question for us it's a statement so the question is is the soundtrack any good yes the soundtrack is really good so while i said that views about the movie are divided Views about the soundtrack are pretty much not divided. It is the best-selling soundtrack album of all time. And it was the best-selling album by a woman for a long time until Adele stole it with 21. Which which is really funny because the Bodyguard original soundtrack is only half Whitney Houston. It is not a Whitney Houston album. Side A is her and side B is is covers of Lovely Day, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. There's a Lisa Stansfield song. Uh, Joe Cocker's on there. Um, I'm forgetting one other one, but you never have to play the second side. I mean, if you have a CD, it's inertia at this point. I wonder if people do play the second side because the first side is so good. There are six singles. Yes, they're all singles. On a soundtrack. Like, usually you might get one single on a soundtrack if it's being done by, like, a high-profile right. artist. Right, there like are Seal, six Kiss from a Rose. Yeah, so this there are six singles, so it's I Will Always Love You, Someday I'm Coming Back, I'm Every Woman, I Have Nothing, Run to You, and Queen of the Night, which is, like, the big, like, right. single that she's promoting in the film. And there's music videos for all of them yep. because she shows parts of the music videos in the film. So, like, she, like, went... Whitney Houston co-produced this, and she went all in on this soundtrack. This is this is another trope from the 90s with the music videos that if you listen to the song or songs that were from the movie on MTV, you would see enough of the movie. You know, we talk about previews ruining things now. Yeah. That was what the music video was. Like, when you see uh, in the Guns N' Roses, You Could Be Mine video, Arnold Schwarzenegger's in the video. Right. Uh, but they're, it's like he's like scanning the members of Guns N' Roses with his little, you know, like uh, heads up display. But you also get to see like, um, you know, the tractor trailer chase from the movie. And it's like, what? Save something for the movie, guys. Which, of course, they do. You don't know that if you haven't seen it. It's the same thing with Bodyguard. Too. I have thoughts about body, the Bodyguard and its music videos, but we're going to get to that. I want to keep talking about the soundtrack first. I also found out that originally she wanted to, instead of I Will Always Love You, which of course was originally written by Dolly Parton, it is a cover, even though Whitney Houston's cover is probably more famous than Dolly's version. 
she originally wanted to record What Becomes of the Broken Hearted as the film's mm. theme song. However, Fried Green Tomatoes prominently used that song and it came out around the same time. So they Curse were look- you. So they were looking for a new song and Kevin Costner was yep. the one who said, hey, there's this song by Dolly Parton that I think you should actually look into. And what's really cool about it is the way it's used in the film, they actually hear another cover of it because they like go to a, a bar because like they want to like kind of get to know each other outside of like who they are as you know, what their roles are and everything. And they dance to it. And she makes fun of it the whole time because she's like, what kind of like white country music is this? And like, you know, like she's like laughing about it, but then she records the song and it's supposed to be the big, like emotional, like symbol of their relationship in the movie. So I can't help but laugh about that because that second version of I Will Always Love You, we were still watching One Tree Hill at this point and we had just seen in the show, the person who performed that song. Right. John Doe from X. Right, from X. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Although I always think of Gilmore Girls and her singing I Will Always Love You yeah. to Luke at karaoke. But that's that's beside the point. Okay, so we've talked about all the important elements of this film, but I don't think we've answered the question yet of is this a romance? Yeah, I want to know. I have real thoughts about this, actually. I don't think that it is, which bothered me because I felt like I was being sold on it as a romance. Mm -hmm. And I understand why people might think it's a romance. It is described on Wikipedia as a romantic thriller. Yeah. But there's a couple of things that I think prevent it from being a romance. And this is also how I was sold on it. Actually, let me back up. This is also how I was sold on it as a romance. You showed me a music video. I don't remember which song it was. I think it might have been I Will Always Love You. I'm sure it was beforehand and like you said it shows clips from the movie and we were laughing about it because it's Mm -hmm. like oh yeah mtv used to show clips from the movie over the thing that music video tells a very different story than the film does and that story much more falls in line with a classic romance genre than the movie does so Hmm. here's the thing here's why i don't think it's a romance and if you don't want spoilers for this movie Spoilers again yeah, for how, a how, how, year old how, movie. For, yeah. For yeah. 30 year old. Spoilers for a 30 year old 30 movie. 30 year old movie. Skip ahead 30 seconds. It will not take me long to explain this. There is no HEA. And that's a problem for romance people. That doesn't mean that every single movie about a relationship should have an HEA. But if you're going to describe it as a romance, you can't break the cardinal rule of the genre. What's an HEA? Happily ever after. Oh. So no. It has to be HEA or happily ever after for now. So does that mean no movie? So Titanic isn't a And there were a lot of these in the 90s where people die at the end. Like City of Angels, not a romance. You can't fight me on this. This is the opinion of the romance community. This is not a new idea that I've had. I, I know. I'm not. I'm just saying like. So they can what be is other it, things. It's a thriller. What's City has, of Angels? It's a drama. Okay. You a drama and a thriller can have elements of romance in them. It so is a romantic. Be, it can thriller? even be motivated by heavy elements of romance, but I would not call it a romance. I would call it a romantic thriller. So that's okay. Yeah. Okay. But I would not call this a romance, All which right. is what I 
it was described to me as, not by you specifically, just it had been described to me this way. And if you go into it thinking, oh, this is a romance, it's, that is not what this is. It is, it does make a very convincing argument for why there is no HEA. I guess this is more than 30 seconds, so we might have to record that. We'll see. But also I don't really understand, actually it's not true. I don't actually understand why there's not an HEA. I am okay with a lot of movies that don't have this, like 500 Days of Summer. Totally okay with the way that that movie ended. I would not call that a romance. That's not a romance either. <laughs> but like, so it's not like I need that in my movies about relationships, but this movie borrows so much from romance tropes that not having an HEA kind of feels like a slap in the face. Like mm. I get the con- I get the conflict. I get the idea that he like doesn't want, that he can't, he doesn't feel like he can like set down roots or whatever. And it's supposed to be tragic or whatever. Blah, blah, blah. That's literally every Regency romance ever. The Duke doesn't want to get married because he wants to have sex with everyone. I get it. But like. I just realized that three out of the five movies we watched that day, people die. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you made me watch a lot of death that Wait, day. Wait, no. Four of them. And. Uh, remember? Yeah. <laughs> the first movie we watched too. Yeah. So I'm just gonna put that. Nobody out there. dies in my best friend's wedding. It's a it is a it is a perfectly fine movie. It is a very enjoyable movie. Just don't go in thinking it's a romance. It is a romantic thriller. Okay. Ta-da! All right. And the soundtrack uh, is very good. Go listen to the soundtrack. Okay. All right. Moving on from the bodyguard, but before we talk about our inadvertent double feature, I wanted to ask you two a question. Are you ready? Do you... Is this a speed round question? Is it, it's not, but it's a question specifically for you too. Okay. All right. I'm ready. So do you see yourself, each of you, as a 90s kid or a 2000s kid? I'm curious as to Andy's answer to this I first. see myself as a 90s kid. Okay. Why? Because the things that I remember most are... Uh, or the things I remember first are like 93, 94, plus to 95, 98. I, I don't see myself as an aughts kid. See, and I I don't know if it's fair to ask me this question because my family was so not with it in terms of like pop culture, which I think is the impetus for what you're asking is pop culture 90s, right? Maybe. Because, yeah, I didn't really watch or listen to anything that was current in the 90s or the aughts until I was like in my later teen years. So I don't know. I've always said I was a 90s kid because yeah, like I remember the 90s, but I probably don't remember them the same way you do. Well, that's that is the question because I ask you this question because we are talking about the 90s today, obviously as a decade related to pop culture. I was told once by somebody older than myself that I was not an 80s kid because the reasoning here is that I don't remember most of the 80s because I was a baby. And so like even while so like Andy said, like he remembers things starting in 93 and 94, you know, those early memories aren't our most formative, Mm -hmm. most impactful memories from when we're young. This is a completely different question for people who were born in the middle of a decade. All three of us were born right at the end or right at the beginning of a decade. So it's a little bit different for us. But I think of myself as an 80s kid, but I've had that challenged. And yeah, I remember the 90s a lot more than I do the 80s. But I do remember parts of the 80s. So 
So I, I, I think it's an interesting question. It is. Uh, but when I think of, of culture, et cetera, I do think of 90s. Um, I think of Power Rangers and more Power Rangers and Pappy Druitt and Power Rangers and some big, ba- big bad Beetleborgs I mean, I feel well. like the music in the early aughts was not as good as the music from the 90s. So I even mean, though... Wasn't. Even though I've encountered the music from the 90s perhaps later than most people did who were hanging out in the 90s, it's definitely a preferable decade as far as music goes. We like the 90s. Is that yeah, what you're saying? But yeah. I don't know if I can say I'm a 90s kid because my parents were super conservative Christians and I didn't listen to anything that was made outside of a Christian group or before the year 1965. <laughs> Fair enough. Interesting, interesting. I, uh, yeah, I, I got nothing on that. I, I, I think if you can remember the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, before, this is this is key now. Before they just repackaged the same episodes in the late aughts as brand new for for kids. That's right. They took the exact same episodes, added some graphics to them, and aired them again on Saturday mornings to be new. Remember the Power Rangers? I wasn't allowed to really watch them, but I saw them at friends' houses. So I guess I, exactly. I, guess I do you remember, remember that. You remember the Pink Ranger, and that's what matters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought she was cool. She's in Felicity, Tessa. Whatever. <laughs> no, she is. Amy Jo Johnson. Good times. Uh, <laughs> I watched a lot of 90s cartoons. Yeah. Mm. So I guess that counts. Uh, you know, well, that's funny because I watched a lot of 80s cartoons. I wasn't like, allowed to watch them, but I saw them. <laughs> right. I am aware of their existence, but I watched, you know, E-Man and Transformers and the Smurfs and the Snorks. Speed Racer? No. No. No Speed Racer? No Speed Racer? No? No. No. Yes. Okay. Okay. We are 90s kids. You are an 80s kid. The point to all this is... At least one of us, if not two of us, were experiencing our formative years during what I think is unquestionably the best decade for soundtracks. And if you agree with me, that's great. But I have receipts. Are you ready? I I have picked my two favorite soundtracks. Okay. That's great. I'm going to come back to that. Let me break it down. Here are some of the best soundtracks from the 90s. The Crow, Lost Highway, The Bodyguard, Romeo and Juliet, Reality Bites, Goodwill Hunting, because of Elliot Smith, That Thing You Do, because of Adam Schlesinger, Singles, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Boys in the Hood, Judgment Night, The X-Files Fight the Future soundtrack, Here are some songs that are huge, big-time songs that are inextricably tied to the movies from which they generated. Blaze of Glory, Wicked Game, You Could Be Mine, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, End of the Road, Can't Help Falling in Love, The Ridiculously Stupid UB40 Cover, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, Gangster's Paradise, Secret Garden, that's right, a mediocre Bruce Springsteen song 
that was featured in a Cameron Crowe movie was taken by a DJ, I want to say from Miami, and they he put songs, he put sounds from the movie over on top of it, and it became a huge unauthorized hit. My heart will go on. Iris. Oh, Iris. I will see your dirty dancing and footloose soundtracks and raise you the entire decade of the 90s. Did you uh did you mention Armageddon? I did not. Okay, I just want to make sure that you didn't mention Criterion Collection. It's movie, one of the first Armageddon. ones too. It's like pretty early in uh, spine number. Yeah. How so, does Iris cri- get more emotional the more you listen to it? Well, it's a it's a you know that's that's the that's the test of a good song. Right? Have you seen the music video for Iris, Andy? By the Goo Goo Dolls. Yes. 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 It is yes. the most overwrought emotional thing I have ever seen in my life. Somehow. It's worse. It somehow it is more emotional than the movie to which it is attached. <laughs> I have a top three. Andy, you have a top two. What are the chances? Like nothing. Like Zero. nil, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> Zero. Okay. There is no way. Absolutely no way you got either of them. So mine. between us, we you, have five. <laughs> I could give you fifty guesses. For both of mine, and you would never pick these two soundtracks. All right, let's hear it. Pokemon, the first movie, the soundtrack. Why are you like this? Hold on, hold on. I'm ready. You know what? I'm gonna. I'm going to go ahead and make the case for this. On this soundtrack, you have "Don't Say You Love Me" by M2M. You have Christina Aguilera's "We're a Miracle." You have "Soda Pop" by Britney Spears. "Somewhere Someday" by NSYNC. Get Happy by Irish girl group Bewitched. You have 98 Degrees, Vitamin C, Billy Piper, Aaron Carter, and a few others that I'm sure mean something to some people. When did this, was this 99? 99. Uh, by the way, I, I, when you were listing that offer, I, can't, I don't know why. I, I remembered I left a song all, uh, off of my list earlier from Con Air, How Do I Live by Faith Hill which had a competing single of the exact same song by Leanne Rhymes. Mm. All right, so Pokemon, then, I'll take it. Then, <laughs> everyone knows you can't have Pokemon without its subsequent thing, Digimon the movie, the soundtrack. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm sensing a theme here. Right. Okay, hold on, because this is, I think, is even more impressive. And you'll, you'll know why in a second. We have the Digi Rap by MCP Pod. We have the Rockefeller Skank by Fatboy Slim. Kids in America by Len. The Impression That I Get by the Mighty Mighty Boss All My Best Friends Are Metalheads by Less Than Jake. All Star by Smash Mouth. And tying it all together. One Week by the Bare Naked Ladies. Andy, you have made a extremely successful case for why you are, in fact, a 90s kid. You Congratulations. But at Thank what you. cost? Thank you. Uh, I, I, I do actually want to uh, give a, a shout out to one of the later ones that we'll be covering today that actually is my, my favorite soundtrack that I would actually listen to without uh, trying to claw myself to death. Go on. Empire Records. 
Yeah. I'm excited. And we're going to get to that one for sure. I, I was not prepared for this. I did not do my homework because I didn't know this was a thing we were doing coming up with top soundtracks. But I have. I mean, a- the title of the episode is 90s movies and their original soundtrack. Okay. I have three options that have not been mentioned so far. Do you want me to go first or do you want to say yours? Hey, you, I mean, are, what, what, what emotional attachment do you have to these soundtracks? I remember them. <laughs> from when I was like a child Let's hear or from when I saw these films right, for the first right, time. Go. Pretty Woman. Sure. That's that's 90. 90. That'll that'll get you there. Clueless has right. a great soundtrack. Although the best song from Clueless is not on the soundtrack. It doesn't exist anywhere. You know what I'm talking Which about, one? right? Jewels singing all by myself. Yes, we've talked about it's that. Not yeah, on the yeah, we have talked about that. That is a great cover. It, yeah. it is. It is. She she did get soundtrack famous for her remix of Foolish. It's not a remix. It's a re-recorded version of Foolish Games from Batman and Robin. Which, yeah, that's the only reason I really put that one on the list before. I will say that Empire Records has the same weakness. The best song is not on the soundtrack. The final one on my list that you didn't mention is the 10 Things I Hate About You soundtrack. Right. Yeah, that's the one that uh, the Letters to Cleo lead singer is on. Is on, uh, yeah. Most of, yeah. I always think of 10 Things I Hate About You as an early aughts movie. Right. I put it on at the same time as... Um... A Knight's Tale? Yeah, that yeah. one. That one. Yeah, it actually came out the same weekend as The Matrix. Right. It is It is wow. 99. It, they came out... Yeah. The, can you imagine that weekend at the movies? But see, that's... You know, the really tricky thing about the 90s is that Pretty Woman feels like it's from the 80s. And those are bookends to the decade. Um, well, and Clueless is right in the middle because it's 95. Right, right. So I gave course, you a 90s sandwich. Yeah. And it, well, it's really interesting because the 90s kicks off with, with uh, and here's a shout out to Lazi because we, we had this discussion. Uh, the 90s kicks off with Groove is in the Heart by D-Light and uh, EMF's Unbelievable. And it ends with all the things Andy mentioned a few minutes ago. (laughs) Like the 90s is a really interesting decade in that way. And it also goes to show um, that trying to classify decades is kind of foolish sometimes, just as it is to do generations, right? Because the 90s looks completely different at the beginning than it does at the end, just like people who are 14 years older than me are nominally in the same generation. But boy, we are not similar. That's why I call Sam a geriatric millennial. But I'm not. I'm a baby X. Or uh, what do they call it? What do you call yourselves? The Generation Catalano? Generation Catalano. Is that like a real before, thing now? But we did that before Suicide Squad. Oh, that's fair. So I don't know that yeah. we want to associate ourselves with what are Jared Leto top? anymore. Look, I, I really, I think that there's like cohorts of three to four years that are actually the generations. Yeah, it's really, I think you're uh, right on track about that. I definitely know that I knew this finishing up high school. I knew that the people that I hung out with the most who were like a class or two classes uh, below me were completely different than than me. They had completely different interests and pop culture interests and stuff like that. Like I remember one of my one of my friends, we were we were in a van on a trip 
and I had her CD case and she had Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness and like the Eagles Greatest Hits. And I'm like, these are two of my favorite albums. She's like, yeah, those are my bedtime albums. Oh, Demon Days was my bedtime album. Huh? I I really liked Demon Days. Well, a lot of (laughs) bold of you to, (laughs) to bring him up right now. Bold of you. No. I, I don't I don't know who you're bringing up. Uh-huh. Demon Days. It, it was the name of my mixtape. Oh, I see. I see. I see. All right. What are your top three, Sam? Well, I'm glad you asked that. And so I'll say, first of all, I had a really hard time with a top five. It's like a top three with honorable mentions. But let's just for <laughs> funsies say tied for fourth, which means four and five are The Crow and Lost Highway. I do love those the are it's so solid good. soundtracks. Uh, they are great. All the nine inch nails on pro. Yeah. Um, Lost Highway has some Angelo Badalamenti, who is David Lynch's frequent, you know, he did the Twin Peaks soundtrack, uh, the theme song, especially, um, well, not especially, he did all of it, but best known for that. Uh, the Crow has got all the songs on all, the Crow. All nine inch nails. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I would put those underneath my top three but they are definitely in i think both in contention and i think about them at the in the same context to me they're kind of inseparable i i i have to say um one of the things about the soundtracks with movies that always drives me insane is when like hero trip or something where you have a supposed hit single in this world yes and it's not catchy enough to be a single. Right. Which Tom Hanks did perfectly well. That thing you do with the is Oneiders. such a good song. I love oh, that song. And it's completely believable as a single. And you hear it so many times Absolutely. in that movie. But that's, that's Adam Schlesinger. But you hear it so many that's times Fountains in that movie that it feels like you're hearing it on the radio. Like, yeah. you know how like they'll play a single yeah. over and over and over again? Like that movie just hits that note perfectly. Yeah. And it's not, t- it doesn't make you, the watcher, tired yeah, of it. Exactly. And that's right. the key. Yeah. I, I want to mention two other things before I give you my top three. There are three people who are known for being the people who are best at putting soundtracks together. Just that is their jam. They know how to do it. Two of them are in my top three. So shout out to Quentin Tarantino, first of all. So I'll say that. The second one is Backbeat, which is a film from the early getting toward the mid 90s. It is a movie about the early years of the Beatles in Hamburg, but really more than anything else, it's kind of a biopic of Stuart Sutcliffe, who was one of their original members, who left the band for love, stayed in Germany. Uh, with with Astrid Kirscher, and then died very shortly thereafter of what I believe is an aneurysm, some sort of brain hemorrhage. And so Klaus Vormann was Astrid's ex-boyfriend. He is the person who designed the cover of Revolver. So there's there's some interesting things there. But Backbeat is the movie about that time period in Hamburg. And what they did was they assembled a band. They created a supergroup. And, you know, so basically the actors in the film are lip syncing and then you have the super group performing the early Beatles songs. Um, and so the, the lead singer from Soul Asylum 
is uh, one of the main vocalists. The drummer is Dave Grohl. So it's 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 kind of a catalyst for that alt 90s early uh, music, except they're playing the Beatles. It's really interesting. All right, so my top three. Number three is the soundtrack you talked about, Tessa. The Bodyguard. Great right. soundtrack. I, I think that's just, man. I mean, and it's all because of Great Whitney Great soundtrack, Houston. terrible romance. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's all because of Whitney Houston, though. Like, Well, yeah. She, I mean, her, that's her just... artistry is what makes that soundtrack. But what's fascinating about this is, is I mentioned Goodwill Hunting, which introduced a large section of people who had not heard of him before to Elliot Smith. And so, you know, Goodwill Hunting and The Bodyguard are like the best soundtracks that feature a single artist. So the second one uh, in my top three is the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. Such a good soundtrack. Is Baz Luhrmann one of the three people yes. you said are known so, to put together So Baz Luhrmann is, yeah. and also if you know, so Romeo and Juliet is Baz Luhrmann's second movie. The first one is Strictly Ballroom. But Romeo and Juliet is the first soundtrack that he is most and perhaps best known for. Uh, Moulin Rouge is pretty good. Romeo and Juliet is the soundtrack that Baz Luhrmann assembled. Famously, Great Gatsby is Jay-Z's soundtrack for a Baz Luhrmann movie. So it's a great soundtrack. The Moulin Rouge soundtrack, which is actually two volumes, is it's a rework. Right. Of songs, right? Yeah. It's they're it's, all covers. It's so you know a good original soundtrack is a mixtape. This is also where we get into songs from and inspired by. The problem with most soundtrack albums is they're not listenable as an album. They are a collection of songs. They're very hit and miss. The Batman soundtracks, um, the the Schumacher Batman movie soundtracks, are great examples of this. So the Moulin Rouge soundtrack to me, doesn't count for that reason. It's very listenable, but it's not a mixtape. Romeo and mm. Juliet is such a good mixtape. You can listen to it start to finish. And the song, the songs that got cut from the soundtrack, the two songs that did not make it onto the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack, one, Radiohead's Exit Music for a Film, which is a weird song title until you remember it's meant for Romeo and Juliet, a real film. Second, Come What May, which the song from Moulin Rouge, Rouge yeah. which is why Baz Luhrmann got screwed out of an Oscar. Yep. It was not written for Moulin Rouge. It was written for Romeo and Juliet and not used. Oof. That is, Oof. That is the Ow. first most infamous unused soundtrack song story of the 90s. Number two is when Bon Jovi wrote a song for the film Romeo is Bleeding and it wasn't used, which is how the otherwise last great Bon Jovi song always starts off with this Romeo is Bleeding. No sense in context of the rest of the song. The other, while we're on the topic of Bon Jovi really quickly, Blaze of Glory is in Young Guns 2. He wrote that song because he petitioned the people behind the first Young Guns movie to use Dead or Alive, wanted Dead or Alive. And they said no. So he's like, I'll show you. <laughs> so his most famous solo song is a soundtrack song written from the greatest creative energy of them all, Spite. Spite. You know, you should really never underestimate Spite as a motivating factor. 
character. You like, should never underestimate Spite. You should never underestimate John Bon Jovi. People talk about stuff like sadness and depression right. and joy and sexual euphoria when it comes to art, <laughs> but they never talk yeah. about Spite. <laughs> spite is spite my number one motivating spite factor. Euphoria. <laughs> spite euphoria. Spite <laughs> euphoria. Um, okay, so... The Germans probably have a word for that. It's probably like wow. several syllables long. The number one song, so we can move on. Or the number one soundtrack. The number one soundtrack, number one. so we can move on. Number one is by the master. Not the best movie. Well, not even the best about mo- movies. We're not even the best movie. Oh, is this the Bat Dance? Not even the best movie by this director. Not even the best movie by this director in this decade. The soundtrack... From the Cameron Crowe motion picture singles. Which I have not seen. But the soundtrack. But it's mostly Pearl Jam, right? It's got two Pearl Jam songs. (laughs) It's got Mother Love Bone. It's got Alice in Chains. It's got Chris Cornell. It's got Soundgarden. It's got Anne and Nancy Wilson doing Zeppelin. It's got Jimi Hendrix. It's got two songs from Paul Westerberg. Uh, Mud Honey. And a couple of others, but I pretty much gave you most of the soundtrack there. I will have to, I do have to say, having never seen- Screaming Trees. I will have to say, never having seen this film before or really listened to the soundtrack or anything, Anna Nancy Wilson, if you ever get a chance to listen to them do Zeppelin, we actually saw them at a show right before the pandemic and they did Stairway and it was just amazing. I've never seen a band be able to do Stairway like that and just like completely yeah. pull it off. So on the soundtrack they do the uh the Battle of Evermore. Yeah. Makes sense. It's like a recorded live. It's it's really good. So that's far and away for me the best soundtrack. I love that Romeo and Juliet soundtrack though. And and I mean I have nothing is just such a great Whitney Houston song. It is my favorite Whitney Houston song. Okay. The 90s, man. Speaking of the 90s, 90s, Andy. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to get into the Christian Slater. Yeah, you but, don't know, man. <laughs> by the way, Andy, before you absolutely go off, I have a misremembered memory from this movie. My misremembered yeah. memory from this movie is that Soundgarden does a cover of L7's shit list on this movie. First of all, oh, there man. is it's everywhere. There is no such version of that song. So <laughs> it's not in the movie. You just dreamed it up. I did. Now Soundgarden is featured in the movie. But anyway, so I it's just weird. Memories are weird. Anyway, you watched Pump Up yeah. the Volume with That's right. National Treasure Christian Slater. He's such a baby a baby face oh that's right you haven't seen heathers yet yeah so let me tell you about christian slater (laughs) not related to helen although they were in the movie supergirl together were they really yes they also play love interests which is not creepy at all even if you know they're not related i mean that's kind of the thing about this right we all have this uh okay i can't keep it up (laughs) Uh, God, he can barely keep it up. I watched Pump Up the Volume. Uh, by the way, I was uh, sorry. Helen and Christian Slater are in the movie The Legend of Billie Jean together. Helen Slater is uh, Supergirl, though. Tell us about Pump Up 
the volume. What's it about? For those who don't know. It is about Christian Slater, who plays a a nerdy little dweeby kid who just moved to Arizona. And he's all, uh, I'm a nerdy little dweeby kid. And um, I'm, I, I can't like talk, but I can do a radio show, a radio show where I just say everything that comes across my mind and like, and, and it's a pirate radio show and it's, it, it, it's something that, uh, yeah, it's a pirate radio show and, um, oh, what, what, what is, what is his character? It's like horse hung Harry or yeah. It's hard Harry. Three it, H's. Yeah, hard, hard Harry. Harry. Har- yeah, hard on Harry. Hold on, I'll actually um, confirm that before we. Uh... But um, yeah. So it's Christian Slater is essentially playing his character from Heather's before <laughs> like snapping. Prison, prison, man. Yeah, at, at, at the, the same the same time this works. He's he has a um a pirate radio show. That comes on, and no one in his school knows that it's him. He is able to, you know, to to do this radio show every every night, and a lot of students start listening to it and start uh, relating to him. And it's it's kind of weird for him to to have this, and um, he starts doing like Dear Abby type, taking advice, taking questions, playing weird little blips of music and fart noises. And um, a student um, who's listening Robloxes themselves. Uh, unfortunately, there's a, a suicide, and uh, he the show gets kind of blamed in the media, and it's uh, just Christian Slater's character dealing with, with that and trying to be anonymous and vent his rage. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really f- good. I mean, that's a really good way of describing it. I mean, I don't... I I watched it the same night you did, although I think I started it a little later than you did because I'd never seen it before either. And it was not a lot of these types of movies that want to talk about these things hold up, but this one surprisingly does. I'm curious to know what you think about that. Yeah, so first of all, one of the things that I really, really love about this movie is the, uh, the, the just, I'm trying to coin this term, existential rage. And I think and good. I feel like that defines what this is. Uh, he's be- oh, you know what? Christian Slater's a podcaster. That's what he is. He's a podcaster. Um, he just does it live. That's how they used to do podcasts. Right, right. <laughs> but there's uh, there there there's there's a moment where a, uh, a a gay kid calls in and seeks advice, and I actually think it's handled really well and not nearly as bad. As it could be, I I was like going to start cringing, you know, knowing that there's this uh kind of edge lordy shock jock Christian Slater, and instead, nope. Uh, it's also incredibly sex positive. Yeah, it's it's so weird, and and it's also taking on the idea of like the parents who were against the system are now part of the system and are letting the system propagate itself. I think one of my favorite lines in the movie is, "I hate the '60s." Like, because the 60s is this excuse that especially white people use, white boomers use to be like, yeah, we did the right thing, right? We were cool. We did the right thing in the 60s. 
and that sort of gives them this blanket excuse to do whatever they want in the 80s and 90s, right? Yeah, this this family is uh, reverse family ties. Yeah. Because family right. ties is the two parents from the 60s grew up and are still hippies, and then they have Alex P. Keaton as a son. This is this is this film is like no actually that's not what would happen. This is what happened. Also, I, I have to say, like as as a uh, former fat kid, seeing any any large rotund boy in a in a nineties school setting in high school immediately gets my hackles up. And immediately makes me waiting for the cringe. And I have to say that, like, they there was never a fat joke yeah. at all. Yeah. I think I, I'm... And I, I'm so grateful for that. This film is extremely crude and obscene and profane. But it's not edgelord because all of that just is wrapped around this giant ball of sincerity at the heart of the film. That's us. What do you What do you think about that? part of the film no no yeah. that that is that is the thing like it's it's the best way to describe it because i really think i know where this is going you know and and christian slater when the uh suicidal boy he talks to him like he even like has this this like edgelordy moment where he's like no 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 i'm, I'm going too far like i i want to i'm going to tell him the truth and tell him that you you, you know it doesn't you know, you know that uh high school sucks but don't do it, but also being like kind of, kind of edgy. Like, like you're you're afraid as a listener, a first time listener, that he might actually be the one to push, and it's very clear that he's not. That he's not even trying to. That he's not entertaining that idea, and he feels so sincerely guilty for having it happened, but needs this uh, output, uh, this outlet for his his anger at the system. It's so beautiful. What did you think about the love interest? So there's a there's a girl who figures out his secret identity after writing a bunch of very sexy poems for him to read on air. What did you think about her? Uh, okay, uh, I have to say, I, first of all, yes, I, 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 I thoroughly enjoyed her. But what I really liked was her interactions with her friends. Yeah. Or, or her female friends. Like, like, like it's so... It's so well written as to how actual teenagers talk to each other. Yeah, I felt like all of these kids were teenagers. I mean, I know that Christian Slater and I'm trying to remember her name were probably not actually teenagers, but I I just I think that there she has a lot more agency than a lot of teens in 90s teen comedies have. <laughs> yes. Uh, she she like is like like hounding him to 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 you know, be a teenager and and bone down, but then she just decides, like, you know what? No, I don't want to do it right now. It's it's so I, I, I don't know. I it is sincere. Sincere is the best way to put this movie. Which is it so is weird because there's rage. so much like graphic, like joking around and like dumping on everything. But that's not weird but if you're one of us. But, but if you're Gen Xer, I guess. I That's how we roll, yeah. man. I also really loved that the main relationship wasn't like he's a jerk to her, but he actually loves her. Like it, it was just so refreshing to see that compared to movies like reality bites that show really terrible versions of relationships. Right. And, um, I, I have to say that I also, yeah, it, it also, I think encapsulates a 
thing uh i i believe that generation x this era i i believe that they really failed us um politically and with actually carrying the the torch on all this stuff that they're they're discussing in this movie and it, it's like yeah hey, all that rage was kind of directed at nothing hey, hey andy can you yeah. name the generation xers who have been president i'll wait yeah exactly and it's not our fault. Don't look at us. It's a reoccurring theme in a lot of the anime I watched. We talked about it, like that the the old generation is. It's time for them to shut up. And this really shows you, like, that this rage was existing. It's just never got around to coalescing. Yeah. Um. What year did this come out again? Ninety one. It, it ninety one was what thirty years ago, and we're still waiting. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much the yeah, no, the biggest I, indictment there is, right? Yeah, no, it, it it was after no, it was nineteen ninety. Yeah, so so like Clinton wasn't president yet, and it's just like saying though that that there is this rage, and you know it, it it's not just Gen X. The millennials didn't follow up on it either, and things aren't better. Yeah, what did you think of a very very young Seth Green in one of his first roles? That was that was really cool. How how could I forget Seth Green? It, and I had to look this up. I had to like look it up on IMDb because I was like, no, 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 no. Not with that haircut. No, no, no. <laughs> Long ginger hair. And I like how they put the 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 radio in the in the tiles. Yeah. This movie fascinated me because as a mid-millennial, I guess, on the younger end of millennials, I remember this technology from when I was a kid, but I didn't grow up like I I was in that phase where things moved really fast with technology. And so movies like this fascinate me because I just don't have a sense of like recording a radio show on a tape and like playing parts of it for your friends or, you know, like the stuff they do with technology. I rem- I have memories of it from when I was a kid, but I didn't have any kind of cultural context like this movie does. So I found that fascinating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, this, this, this movie is great. Okay. I used to be a Christian hater, Right. I used to not enjoy Christian Slater stuff. I was a again a Christian hater. Uh, this movie and Heather's like really pulled me around on him. Mister Robot did too. He's such a great little Jack Nicholson actor, and he's a great little Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yes, yes, he, he's he's a great little Jack Nicholson. But what about the soundtrack of this movie? What about the soundtrack of this movie? It is it is as nineties. As your favorite soundtracks, Andy, but in a completely different way. Yeah, that is... This this soundtrack uh, features Leonard Cohen prominently, but also the Beastie Boys, Sonic Youth, Pixies, Concrete Blonde, Soundgarden, Cowboy Junkies, and Henry Rollins. Above the Law. Yeah. Was Not Was. Dr. Dre. Yeah. LL Cool J. It's good. I mean, what, Uh, what did you think? Or sorry, not LL Cool J, Ice T. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I thought, I thought this was good. It's just not m- as much my style as, um, as uh, the next record. So as Len, <laughs> yeah, Vitamin C. Uh, it, well, it's, it's just not as much my style as Empire Records. Right. So the way I would, the way I would describe this is, no, 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 because I really didn't like the movie of uh, empire records but i love the soundtrack this i i like yeah the soundtrack's good i can recognize that it's good but the movie is great well it's funny because you both did an inadvertent double feature right. which 
Sam didn't realize yeah, before starting Empire Records no, that it didn't. was also directed by Alan Moyle. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So why don't we just go right into it and talk about Empire Records? To tell you to tell you about this movie, I I feel like I really I have to tell you why I've never seen this movie. Take me back to 1995. Right. This is in theaters. It's burning up the charts. Where are you? Oh, it's, <laughs> no, this isn't about 1995. This is about eight or nine years later. Okay. Okay. So it's 1995 plus eight or yeah, nine years. Yeah. This is still burning up the charts. Well, and it's also really you? important to go back to what we were talking about with Pump Up the Volume. I, you know, it's a very earnest movie, very earnest Generation X movie about that, that gooey inside of the hardest exterior shell, which that's what that generation mm-hmm. is. Very earnest, mm-hmm. but it has to be hidden, right? Empire Records is what happens when the shell takes over and the 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 inner goodness is gone. Okay, it it is a document in the same way that Pump Up the Volume is. But I I have to tell you right now, indie record store clerks are some of the shittiest people who have ever lived. You want to talk about people who think they're better than you? You want to talk about people who think they list they like music that's better than yours? You know what you that know what it's like. That's much cooler than mine. Right. That's what this is. So there was a record store at the college town that I I went to school at and lived in for for several years. I mean, I'm talking about the the middle-aged, washed-up, former goth dude, drug junkie who came back east from his misadventures out west. Talk about the burnout stoner, the other burnout stoner, the assistant manager who's so full of rage, the manager who's clueless, the youngest employee, the rockabilly goth girl, the other token girl who's really only on the schedule once a week. These are all stereotypes of indie record. They're, they're everywhere. They're at every indie record store in the 90s and early 2000s. They are all terrible people. And they moved on to GameStop. <laughs> this store is so bad because in order to work there, when you fill out an application, they give you what's called a music quiz. And you have to like, for every genre they have in the store, you have to like name different artists and representative that you have to prove that you know music. I have taken that quiz because I did apply to work there. And and I know, like I was able to name all the stuff from the genre because I had I had coaching uh, for the stuff I didn't know. But the problem is they already knew what my musical taste was. They knew that Pearl Jam was my favorite band and they knew that I liked the Foo Fighters. And so I never had a chance at getting a job there. So I hate these people. I hate these people. So I never watched Empire Records because these are people I hate. Because of your trauma. Yeah. Well, and the movie does. Be happy and, to know. And I'll tell you straight up, this movie does a great job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was about to say this, this movie makes these people <laughs> makes <suck>. indie. <laughs> oh, I actually man. really enjoyed this movie, so I'm curious to hear. I mean, like, I also think they suck, but I also really enjoyed the movie. Right. So. And I, I'll do you one better. I will tell you another thing. Rex Manning, right? 
the 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 Rex Manning. So the the big thing about Empire Records, it is the last day, supposedly, of an indie record store that's about to be bought out and turned into a corporate record store. One of the big subplots mm-hmm. of the movie is that they're having an in-store, which is uh, what happens when an artist is promoting an album and they come do a performance and slash or a signing in the store. One of the employees of the store is going to throw herself at Rex Manning. This is the character who's played by Liv Tyler, who is great in this movie. I mean, she's great in every movie, she's right? She's great, yeah. Like, this is, this is Arwen when she was a young indie record store clerk. <laughs> Famous <laughs> part it, of Lord of the Rings. And it actually works. It actually works because you know she lives forever, right? Yeah. This is the same person who's in that thing you do. Yeah. Right? She, 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 30 years after the events of that thing you do, she is now a record store clerk. Uh, I get it. I get right? it. Right? Which, I mean, somebody who's lived all the way through rock and roll would be a great record store clerk, wouldn't yeah. she be? Yeah. I mean, this is a much better movie than Twilight that I'm pitching. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway. Anyway. So, another story from the indie record store uh, that my ex worked at is that they had, uh, an in-store for uh, Jerry Cantrell, who was uh, one of the founding members of Alice in Chains, one of the current members, I guess. Anyway, he was doing a solo album, you know, promotional tour. And so he did an in-store and from all accounts, he was very handsy. So he was, it was the Rex Manning thing from the film is apparently very, very true. This is, this is the kind of shenanigans that happen on in-stores. I assume not every, Musicians manager is Debbie Mazar level cool, but you know, it is what it is. She's great in this movie. We have Anthony LaPaglia as well, who's super fun. And then Renee Zellweger is also a young Renee Zellweger is fun. I almost didn't recognize her. Oh yeah. So anyway, um, it's a movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's a movie. It's a movie. Like I spend more time thinking about my own, thoughts about indie record store in in um context of this movie than I do the movie. Yeah, so I haven't seen it um but I feel like this movie is high fidelity with zero art. I don't think that's true. I I really enjoyed it to me this movie you mentioned Quentin Tarantino earlier. This right. movie has a very Quentin Tarantino feel to it without like the gratuitous oh, I, I mean, I think Alan Moyle wants to be somebody in that ilk. I'm not, yeah. you know, when you see a movie like this, you ask yourself, was Pump Up the Volume an accident? Like an unreplicatable accident. Because, yeah, yeah looking at his filmography, I think Ooh. it might be, I think, he, I think I might be right on this one. I think he may have accidentally made a good movie. Uh, he he made one I don't even want to try looking up called uh, Jailbait. Like I'm already afraid to, well, <laughs> to even try looking that you one know, up. Empire uh, Records is a good recurring sketch. Yeah. On like Kids in the Hall or uh, the Upright Citizens Brigade, something like that. Yeah, right, right, right. There, there, there is no no plot. This movie is a. It is what tortilla chips are to salsa. It's the salsa. Um, the this soundtrack? movie is. Okay, yes, the salsa. It, sorry, it, yes, the salsa is the music. Oh, I followed. Uh, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's the best way I can put it. But Andy, you haven't seen it. Tessa, 
what is this movie trying to say? Friendship? <laughs> Question mark? Uh, we could just I watch feel, Grease instead. I feel like they're trying. he's trying to do something specific by having it all set in one day. Right. There's some really good character mm-hmm. work going on in this film by the actors. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's kind of just about resisting corporate greed and music. Right. That seems to be I, the I only do, real through line I, that ties together a bunch of really great character sketches. I'm also not going to tell this story because I've already spent too many, too much time exercising demons today. But I have to tell mm-hmm. you, they uh, a real indie record store would not have treated Warren the same way. Oh my God, that's you a are, hilarious storyline. Alan Moyle is like, indie record store people are easygoing. They would have fried that dude. They would have created their own electric chair and executed so that motherfucker. One of, the re- one of the things you haven't <laughs> mentioned, because I, I don't know, but the impetus for this being the last day of the store being open right. is that one of the record store employees, Lucas, literally steals mm-hmm. money the night before because mm-hmm. he's closing and he thinks that the owner is about to sell out to Music Town. And so he steals the money and goes to Atlantic City to try to win more money. So that way they don't have to close the store. And he doesn't and he doesn't really think what he did was wrong. No. Because there is nothing in this world more wrong than selling out. Right. Which is not true that, for these people, by the way. Yes. But, but it brings up this hilarious series of sketches in which the, the 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 manager Joe tells him to sit on the couch and not to move until he <laughs> figures out what's going on and he's on the couch for most of the movie but at one point when they see Warren who is shoplifting Lucas like puts on his shoes and goes after him and catches him in a, in a really hilarious chase scene but he's got the cushion of the couch under one arm so he can say that he was on the couch the whole time like this movie is very funny and it does yeah embrace a lot of the humor and the character of Warren is hilarious. Like it, the character sketches are great, but you're right. There is not much of a plot or purpose to this beyond just allowing these actors to do really good things. There is Andy. There is one clear point of comparison between this movie and pump up the volume. Okay. But first there is a gay character. Mm -hmm. That's it. He makes a mixtape uh, for one of the record store employees. It, I mean, he's he's uh, a gay character. He has a crush on one of the the employees. The other one is oblivious, but probably okay with it. Absolutely nothing is made of this. It doesn't matter. Okay, I I, I, w- I want to ask a question because Tessa, uh, I think both of you hit the nail on the head here. What happened between Pump Up the Volume and Empire Records? And I know exactly what it was that changed this movie. I don't know. Tell us. Pulp Fiction was released a year before this movie came out. I guarantee you that it went through and just tried to change everything about the editing of this film afterwards because everyone was trying to copy Tarantino then. Right. Yeah. But I think that it works fairly well tonally in this movie. I I don't know. I liked this movie. Clearly you do. You two do not like this movie as much. But no, I just no. It just has nothing to say. Yeah, it's it's a very and pump up the volume felt like it. Yeah, if you yeah, it's not as good as pump up the volume. But I do see it as a really good vehicle for these actors to do great character work. What was the best song on the soundtrack? Well, the Rex Manning song. No, uh, <laughs> uh, you know. Okay, so this soundtrack is also really good. 
It's got gin blossoms, cracker, dishwalla, toad the red, toad the wet sprocket, Evan Dando, the cranberries, better than Ezra, Guar, ACDC, the Buggles, and Dire Straits. I mean, I love the song Romeo and Juliet, but that's not the question you're asking. The Gin Blossom song is the big song from the movie. It's good. Um, I like it. You know, a bunch of the bands that I mentioned are really not my particular brand of 90s jam. I'm not that cool. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say I really enjoyed the two cuts from the Cranberries. So, yeah. Okay. Tessa, what was your favorite? I really, I'm trying to remember what the name of it is because I'm not as familiar with these bands. Yeah. The one that Liv Tyler is singing in the in the kitchen when she's getting it ready for Rex Manning's lunch. Do you know which one that is? I don't remember. It's really good. It might be Sugar High. It is not. Which one is it? I, I don't know, but I can tell you because Sugar High is the one that I love the most. I think this is the best one, particularly the version with Renee Zellweger singing it at the end of... Whole lot of trouble is what she sings. Sorry, I wasn't in the mic. No, no, sh- but the, the Renee Zellweger singing "Sugar High," like I freaking love that. It's song. a great I don't song. Know why. Yeah, it's a great performance by them too. On the roof. I mean, I have listened to this uh, this particular song, like that version with her, <laughs> because it's on YouTube, and that's the <laughs> only way you can watch it. Yeah, that's just um, just like yeah. Jewel and Clueless. Ah. Anyway, that's yeah. that 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 is me. Uh, I I I really love this album though, uh, or this soundtrack in general. The Cranberries, Sam, that is that is a perfect choice. I mean, usually, right? Well, we talked all about the '90s today. It's exciting. We did it was a good 90s. time for me and you two '90s kids. <laughs> <laughs> so Baz Luhrmann has a movie coming out this year. It's exciting. It was supposed to come out last year, but. After that failure of The Great Gatsby? Oh, that was such a good movie. Good soundtrack. I haven't, I haven't seen it Good movie, yet. good soundtrack. If you want to talk about critical failure, it's the movie before The Great Gatsby, Australia, which is really three movies stuffed it's, into a trench coat. It's three movies in one. Like, literally, you can tell when one movie ends you can. and the next one no, begins. he straight up made three movies and put them together. Oh, oh, th- th- that's right. This is the movie that Tom Hanks got... Um, got covid while filming that he did he plays the colonel yeah this is this is the elvis movie which means it ought to have a very interesting period soundtrack we won't be able to get to see baz lerman work his soundtrack magic but i have high hopes that well no he'll work a different kind of magic i hope you you don't you you mean to say that jay-z doesn't just do all of his soundtracks now after Gatsby? I, I don't think so. Right. We all want, we all, what we're really asking is for the 90s thing of having a rap af- over the credits re-summarize the plot of the movie. If you remember, I, that, I mean, I'll take that it. running thing. It's the 90s version of a Greek uh, chorus. I, right. Again, with Eminem doing the entire plot of Venom over the movie <laughs> Venom. Please don't. I'm not you're, kidding. That, you're hurting me. That was there. I've said you're hurting Eminem me. The episode must be yeah, over. No episode is we over. I don't know why we're still bingo. talking. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we talked about the 90s all day today. It was great. Are we going to do that next week? What are we doing next week? I don't know, but Jared's going to be there. I know what I'm doing. 
It's gonna. It's, it's we, a regular episode. I will be celebrating a late great musical legend. Andy, where can people find you online? <laughs> you can find me online on Twitter at Andy Noted. Tessa, where can people find you online? You can find me online. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. Next up is Witches Abroad, which is coming out this Wednesday. You can find that at Nanny's Book Club on Twitter and at Nanny Ogg's Book Club on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. Please tweet at me and answer the burning question. Is it better to burn out or fade away? Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today. What pop culture you crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkey backlog. Email us at monkey off my backlog at gmail.com. Visit our website, monkey off my Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overwatch, Listen, Casts. Overcast? Uh, you know what? You can find us on Twitch. That's right. We're going to be streaming live from now on. Or wherever Twitch. you listen to podcasts. Two aluminum cans and a string. <laughs> Wherever you listen to us, get that monkey off your back. I said knock knock, let the devil in. Shotgun of a pellets in the felt pen. It's evident I'm done. Venomous, the thoughts spun like a web and you got caught in them. <laughs> <laughs>